welcome to the State of the Theory podcast. I'm Hannah. And I'm in India. And we are your theory doctors. Hello. Welcome back. How have you been, Hannah? I've been all right. Yeah, it's pouring rain today in Edinburgh. It is a, a filthy day in Edinburgh today. We are glad to not be outside anymore. And instead we are in a warm-ish room recording. What are we talking about today? This is part two um, of our conversations about sort of broad mainstream trends, movements in climate change and climate change activism. Um, last week, we talked about uh, Extinction Rebellion and forms of uh, kind of nonviolent resistance and um, disruptive resistance and disruptive activism. And we focused particularly on anthropocentrism as a and and the issues we have of uh challenging anthropocentrism as a as a way of seeing the world. Yes. And what are we talking about today? Today today we're talking about youth. Yes. Young people, childhood, children, young women specifically, yes. but young men also make an appearance. Um and we I think both have been um really excited by but also um uncomfortable about some of the ways in which young people have been and young people's personalities and charisma have been elevated um certainly in kind of online media in the last year or so around climate activism yeah so i guess the the immediate uh spurring for making this this episode was greta thunberg who i'm sure our listeners will be familiar with uh but we are also going to talk about uh figures like her who came to prominence uh a few months few years earlier so we're going to talk about Malala Yousafzai we're going to talk about Emma Gonzalez from the Parkland shootings and our position is we are impressed by the energy and dynamism they're bringing to their movements but we would like to critique the various forms of representation that their activism has led to yes um we are absolutely not uh saying anything uh that is critical about them or their movement uh we really don't want to engage with at all the sort of various forms of conservative responses often violent often misogynistic that have uh that these these young women have faced uh we don't want to give give that a energy if you like uh but what are we doing i think we're really interested in the way that our set you know kind of uh people approaching middle age and older kind of our parents are um often you know especially if you come from a sort of liberal or a progressive background um are representing in particular ways without i think critical reflection on the forms of subjectivity that are being created here um the young women themselves of course par- part of the power comes from the fact that their campaigns their movements the the political issues with which they're engaging are ones that we already agree with so for us of course when malala yousafzai was attacked um it was horrific um and it was 
a kind of reminder that lots of young women experience violence when they try and um, access education or when they try and access political rights. So for us, that was, you know, it was obviously a, an event that was horrific. Um, and we have since, of course, you know, watched her grow up and watched her uh, win awards and be recognized and become a leader in, in the kind of um, area of, of young women and young women's rights and education. We agree with all of that. But what's happened to her, I think, is is really interesting. And it's not something that we talk about much. And I don't think we take responsibility for the ways in which her life has been shaped and ordered by the wider power structures at play here. And the way that she's been represented, I think, has has um, certainly had a sort of epistemic violence, um, not just on her, but on other young women who try and um, become activists and who are working actively in their communities. And it's, I think it's important that we reflect on our role in that, essentially. Um, do you want to explain quickly what epistemic violence means? Yes, epistemic violence is um, the use of, of dominant discourses, dominant ways of seeing the world, assumptions to silence or um, manipulate smaller, less mainstream, marginalized voices and discourses so that they are either hidden from view or that they are suppressed in some way. Um, and by that I mean essentially that there are many different facets to a young person's activism, many different aspects of their identities, um, lots of different avenues and trajectories through which their lives could could kind of progress. And some of the ways in which I think we represent them and some of the power that the media gives to them actually narrows possibilities for them and um, shapes them in ways that isn't necessarily uh, easy. So um, I guess just to play devil's advocate for a second, if we take the example of Malala Yousafzai specifically for the moment, there was the initial act of horrific physical violence that she underwent. And then after that, as a result of that, in reaction to that, there was this wider, more diffuse epistemic violence that her life and career has undergone since. How could we compare these two forms of violence? Because they are very different. Yes, right? they are very different. And I think... Ultimately, it's why we would never call for um, children and young people to to refrain from being politically active, to refrain from uh, engaging in the public arena. We would always kind of say, you know, we should absolutely make space and young people should be claiming space. Um, but at the same time, there is, a, I think, a lack of critical reflection on the part of liberals Generally, and I think it's a process of maintaining the humanity of the people at the heart of the movement. So uh, after uh, Malala was attacked, a lot of the images in the immediate aftermath of that event were of her in the hospital. They were really horrific, violent images. Um, and she, her humanity and her individuality was sacrificed for um, the sake of an image that was something bigger than her, which was a, a kind of attack on all young women who are um, 
denied access to education and attack on all young women who work to um, uh, call for and advocate for themselves. And there was a real kind of dehumanizing aspect. I think because she was, she's the sort of earliest case that we're talking about. And of all the young people, of course, she's now the oldest. Um, she's, you know, now, a, you know, by kind of standard uh, categories, she's an adult now. Um, and she has herself worked very hard to create a kind of adult life um, that is outside of the public eye in many ways. Um, but her image, pictures of her, um, people following the, the news media was following her um, recovery really closely. Um, and there was a sort of um, an obsession with where she would go, how she would um, kind of receive protection and shelter and then at the same time how she would continue her work so there was this sort of she needed to be protected she needed to be saved but then at the same time she also was going to go back out into the fray and she was going to continue the fight and it's these two kind of opposing tensions that I don't think liberal kind of supportive sources engage with and, and there was there was you mentioned the photographs of her in hospital there there is a worrying obsession with suffering yes uh and i'm not necessarily equating the examples of suffering that i'm going to list here but there is a commonality in the way in which all of us both mainstream media social media consumers colluded in a process that a rendered the suffering symbolic and b made it something to be consumed you know turned them into into performers and turned us into spectators we 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 were sort of we placed ourselves in the position of an audience looking at and therefore exerting control over over these examples of suffering so we can think of the the shooting that malala uh, underwent we can talk about we mentioned Emma Gonzalez earlier. Emma Gonzalez uh, after the Parkland shooting, there was a, a particular video that went viral quite quickly where she gave a speech at a, a, a rally about gun control, and part of what made the video particularly amenable to this sort of memification, I think, was the moments when she couldn't hold back her tears any longer. Uh, most recently, I'm sure our listeners will have seen Greta Thunberg's speech at the United Nations, where she is again clearly struggling to to keep her emotions uh, together. And I think we should add. Sorry to interrupt you. Yeah. I think we should add that the source, the source of the suffering and the source of the activism, also is at play. So the Parkland shootings, of course, Emma Gonzalez had um, been a part of a mass shooting at a school. Um, so she had been surrounded by violence, which led to, and part of um, Greta Thunberg's discourse is that climate change is already and will continue to become progressively more violent, that people's yes. lives are at stake. Mm. Um, and so there's an initial act of suffering that starts the activism and then continues through the performance 
of the activism. Before we turn the machine on, we were we were discussing whether or not to describe this general media adult obsession with the suffering that these children, teenagers are going are undergoing. Whether we can describe this obsession as as a kind of fetishization, and I think we can. It was our conclusion, right? Yeah. Well, I think with uh, I mean that is the theorists of representation yeah. tell us that visual representation allows for fetishization um, and and a kind of commodity fetishism where the performances of suffering are um, dissociated or disconnected from the complexities of the source of it um, in many ways. And so it's abs- the suffering itself can be abstracted and then consumed so that um, you can you can feel and emote in response to the performance of the suffering itself and you can, you know, quite literally consume the image of it without having to to deal with the nuances of the humanity of the person that is suffering or the complexities of the like political, economic, and social issues that they're talking about. I guess part of my question then is, uh, granted that all these three young women underwent particular forms of violence over which they had no control, or about which they had no choice, they do they did and continue to have a choice about how to respond, mm-hmm. right? So we said before, we are, we are certainly not arguing for uh, childhood, adolescence, teenage years as a space where political activism is not allowed. If that is the case, then is the problem that Greta Thunberg is going to the United Nations to give us talk in which she is breaking down in tears or Emma Gonzalez is speaking at a rally where in which she's breaking down in tears or is the problem that that image of of the this a particular young woman doing that gains a symbolic importance over which that young woman has no control yes to the second one yeah. yeah and um it's really interesting because obviously there's agency always at play mm-hmm. and um women are subjected to you know a wide variety of types of representation that, that kind of do this mm-hmm. um that st- stick you in a uh essentially a, a between a rock and a hard place a sort of catch-22 issue here um where if you don't if you don't perform a certain amount of emotion, you can't be trusted. But if you perform emotion, you can't be trusted. But then at certain flashpoints, it's that it's that kind of um, inexplicability that it's like kind of unnatural, but so unnatural, it's, it's supernatural um, that you have no control over how, who you are gets created beyond you but then at the same time of course you learn how you learn how to use that you learn how to and I think a lot of these young women have learned in many ways how or they are learning how to access exercise practice agency within that 
framework. But I think, you know, we as a kind of liberal audience, as consumers of it, need to meet them halfway. And we need to recognize that they are doing that work. And we need to also recognize what it is that we are doing that requires that work of them. Yeah, I, I guess as as you were talking, I was trying to think of examples of adults, you know, by conventional definition, adults in positions where they've broken down in tears and how those tears have also been co-opted into particular symbolic importance. I guess I was thinking of um, uh, Dr. Christine Blasey Ford, if you remember from the Brett Kavanaugh mm-hmm. nomination hearings, where there were moments when she was struggling to keep her emotions together. Uh, similarly, you could go back uh, a few years to the Anita Hill testimony mm-hmm. in a, a, a similar situation, and there have been many, many more. So an adult in that situation, even if that adult has chosen to to appear in that situation, to be politically active in that manner, has no control over the the process through which they become a spectacle either. So is there something about the fact that these women are not adults that makes it more complicated, makes it more disturbing? Yes. And I think it has to do with the the structural framework within which childhood exists. So when you're a kid, I don't know how many episodes we've done where we've talked about kind of anthropological and sociological theories of childhood. There's some some contemporary work done on the construction of children in terms of identity formation and culture and how that then feeds into a legal framework that denies children pretty much every right that anyone else is, you know, has as a sort of privilege or a right. Kids are... Um, framed as um, some anthropologists call it uh, human becomings, that they're not fully fledged human beings and therefore are not, um, they're not responsible for their actions, but they also are not then worthy of the same types of rights. Um, There's also a UN declaration on the rights of the child. So childhood and children as a kind of category is deemed to be something that is distinctive from adulthood. And the rights of the child extend to legal adulthood. So the the rights of an infant are the same as the rights of a 16-year-old or an 18-year-old, depending on um, the kind of legal definitions of what constitutes a legal adult in terms of citizenship. And that's a really fascinating distinction. And that has, has um, it gets appropriated by both the left and the right in many ways, to either deny or grant agency at will, and always, I think, to the benefit of the people around the child, not the child themselves. So I'm thinking specifically um, about a lot of the discourse around young black boys who have been subject to police violence or who've been killed by police, um, that they are talked about and framed as being men, as being adults. Um, and at the same time, discourses of childhood and and um, being young and irresponsible, being applied to white men who are legally adults. Um, so the the discourse gets appropriated and manipulated quite explicitly um, in order to to generate certain power relations. But because of the legal framework, kids tend not to have 
very many rights generally. And very few other people have as few rights as children have, really. It's it's fascinating to, to think about and to consider. Um, and so because of that, these young people enter an arena in which childhood is always so um hotly contested and so but so rigidly defined legally but so culturally confusing and convoluted that at every turn they're confronted with kind of an internal contradiction or an inherent tension and it kind of places them in this weird liminal space in terms of who they are what kind of subjecthood or kind of identity that they can either have themselves or that is kind of placed upon them and in in sitting in that liminal space it's very very easy to then deny them humanhood personhood yeah i guess i guess part of what i was thinking about while you were speaking is to what extent is the publicity that these women these young women have attracted through their activism to what extent is that connected precisely to the fact that they're not adults right if we it, and and i don't necessarily mean the conservative response about you know you are a child so you should shut up i i mean the the liberal response you know the the apparent positivity the warmth the you know facebook post after face facebook post about how inspiring people have found you know including us how inspiring we have found uh the passion with which greta thunberg speaks or the passion with which emma gonzalez speaks or the articulate or the articulate nature yeah. of how they speak and especially in the case of greta thunberg her uh the fact that she's using a second language has been picked up the fact that she is she is neurodiverse uh has also been picked up as you know barriers to overcome and the fact that she she is so articulate and so passionate in her use of language uh becomes part of our social cultural liberal obsession with her i think and i guess the question is to what extent is that obsession connected to to the age specifically well yeah because of course i think because of the the way that people I say me people, I mean kind of, you know, mainstream discourses around childhood, the way that children are expected to behave and not in a kind of expected to behave so they're taught to behave a certain way, but in the way that that um, it's often assumed that children do behave or will behave. There's always, a, um, I think, a certain subset of the media that is surprised when children behave in a way that is complex of course people who specialize in this are not right you know child psychologists educators are not surprised in the least that a young woman who's 16 years old is taking an interest in and is working actively to raise awareness about climate change you know i'm sure her teachers were not surprised um but in terms of of media representation it is surprising because this isn't normally how children are represented and it's certainly not how teenagers are represented. Yeah, and it it challenges certain very powerful perhaps hegemonic narratives about you know 
this generation of kids being apathetic and and always and yeah the the newest generation is always the most apathetic right well yeah they're addicted to their phones i mean you and i know this right like we we see all the kids that we encounter are terrible you know our jobs are the worst they are addicted to their phones they don't think um they don't have any social skills um they don't have any friends anymore. What else don't they do? They don't drink alcohol. Oh my gosh. Like they don't save money. They, they don't save yeah. money. Yeah. They're lazy. You know, all of they don't read. Yeah. <laughs> and and of course that is all rubbish. But I guess it points to the fact that whenever we have these sort of figureheads of activism, people like the women we've been discussing, um they are working against, among other things, particular narratives of childhood and adolescence. Um, but this obsession has with with the visionary teenage or adolescent, usually woman, but not always, has a long history, hasn't it? Yes, it does. Do you want to say a bit about it? Well, I think we should we should uh, shout out. To uh, Peter Mackay, uh, your colleague in the School of English at St. Andrews, um, who, a brilliant academic, but who has contributed to this conversation already and suggested that there is a kind of um, a granting of oracle status that takes place here. And the oracle is a, it's a, both a religious role but also a literary role um prominent in classical literature but of course uh, maintains a role in christianity and in other you know pretty much every other tradition has has some form of oracle and the oracle is a um a it's a, an individual who is removed from society in some way either physically or um uh emotionally or psychologically or in some in some way they're set apart and they access knowledge from the divine and then transmit that knowledge to everyone else and there are some very famous ones in history some are kind of self-proclaimed oracles others the oracle status is is granted to them externally um and it is very gendered um, and I think that has to do with uh, the the mechanics of spirit possession, how spirit possession has over millennia um, manifested discursively in, in different religious traditions. And oracles will sometimes act as mediums and they will directly channel the divine, the voice of the divine. Other times they will act as a sort of interpreter of the divine often associated with religious practice in some way. Um, it's, I mean, I think it's a, it's a really great application of the concept here. It's, it feels very similar and it, and it taps into, I think our discomfort. Because the oracles don't usually end well. They do, do they? not. Because yeah. the, the, there's the meme, right? You know, everyone who's, what's the, the quote everyone who's talking about Greta Thunberg would do well to remember Joan of Arc. Yeah. Joan of Arc was burned at the stake. Like she went to war and then she was burned at the stake. So I mean, I would really hope 
that we aren't going to sacrifice this brilliant young woman for our own kind of spiritual or emotional or political but in some ways we already have exactly right like the the video of her speaking at the united nations when she is at the point of of tears in in pain and suffering and and passion and anger while the world leaders are sitting politely and applauding every time that video is shared it makes us all feel a little bit better about ourselves and the world because she is doing what she is doing in other words her suffering not to be too subtle about it her suffering cleanses us right cleanses us of our sin in terms of our collusion with climate change you know our contribution to climate change all of the things that we should and do feel guilty about are made slightly more bearable through her suffering you know all of those of us who are in a place to do something about gun control in the united states and haven't or haven't successfully can feel slightly less guilty when we feel good about the parkland kids and what they did so that i mean you know obviously these kids haven't been burnt at the stake but the the symbolic importance of their sacrifice has already manifested itself and it is required yeah. in order for the impact to be made it's a requirement of us essentially and i mean us as like the mass of consumers to feel a certain way say a bit more so the the new show on netflix that has had a little bit of um kind of like cult commentary about it um and it's called unbelievable and it it traces a real case um a young woman in washington state was sexually assaulted in her apartment um violently sexually assaulted in her apartment by a stranger and she reports the assault to the police and eventually after a number of weeks everyone around her her foster family the um the police officers decide that she's lying because her behavior isn't what one would expect of a young rape victim and so because she doesn't express um kind of easily understandable physical or emotional or psychological symptoms of violence or trauma or post traumatic stress or whatever it is because she performs a sort of i'm back to my life everything is fine i'm fine they don't believe that her trauma was real so whatever response that she had that she, she was responding in her way to what had happened to her wasn't enough it wasn't good enough it wasn't proof and in fact it was proof that the event hadn't happened eventually a couple of detectives women detectives in another state start to piece together evidence that points to a serial rapist and that serial rapist had evidence that he had committed the crime against this young woman in Washington and so they they eventually had irrefutable kind of proof according to the law that he had committed this crime and he was convicted and it calls into question the way that that people read or interpret other people's emotional behavior 
um, or the way that they express emotion or especially kind of heightened emotions, uh, sadness, depression, anxiety, anger, trauma. And if you don't perform them according to socially recognizable or culturally recognizable norms, then it can't be read through the grid or lens that is required for the oracle. So the oracle performance has to be translatable. We have to understand it. And we require it to look a certain way in order for us to then emote in response, to feel empathy or to feel uh, connection or to feel anger. That's really fascinating. I guess this is this is laboring a point slightly, but is it that we have to understand the oracle's emotions or is it that we can't understand it in other words that it has to be not understandable and the reason i'm saying this there's i've seen a lot on on social media describing greta thunberg as bitter or angry and then people have come to her defense saying you know you read up about her she has asperger's or, or you know and and that's a whole problematic response on its own terms but I wonder if the oracle has to somehow be beyond our understanding and the fetishization of Greta Thunberg particularly ha- has something really problematic about autism mm-hmm. as well. Yes. I mean, the the neurodiverse aspect of Greta Thunberg is, is really interesting, I think. Um, and it has... Um, and each of these young women actually according to kind of post-structuralist readings of identity, have a distinctive identity that does set them apart in some way. Um, Emma Gonzalez presents not as a kind of straight, effeminate young woman. She presents in a more kind of non-binary way. So that has been something about her that's really obvious in her representation. Malala Yousafzai obviously is a Muslim young woman. And the those aspects of otherness and othering mean that for a kind of mainstream liberal audience who think of themselves as being of the norm or typical can't at a certain point can't understand the nuances and uniqueness of that experience and that inability or refusal to understand then becomes part of the oracle myth yeah right they 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 are more amenable to being transformed into a symbol because of that otherness um before we turn the machine on you were talking about a particular example from a famous multi-series fantasy oh and, yes and child sacrifice you want to say a bit more about yeah, that? yeah so game of thrones has a spoiler alert spoiler alert we're you know how we feel about spoilers gordon um Game of Thrones has a has a child sacrifice. Um, and obviously Game of Thrones m- more broadly deals with children, I think, in quite a transgressive way. Um, it presents children in a, a really fascinating way, generally. The books do it, so the, the TV show kind of has, has had to do it. Um, children are subjected to violence. Children die. Children are given agency and power. Children are terrible. Children are good um, in Game of Thrones. But what's really interesting is the child sacrifice plot. The child who is sacrificed it fits all the tropes. The rest of the kids don't, but this child does. She's uh, physically uh, deformed 
according to the narrative of the book. So she, it's talked about she's got a, um, a, a like birthmark type situation so that she looks physically deformed is the language. And she's small and clever and she's good and benevolent and she doesn't see class differences. She appreciates people for who they are. She also is... Um, uh, She's quite cute, and she sits at an age where we think of children as starting to become individuals. They're starting to individuate from their families, but while still loving their parents. And so it's this really horrific moment of child sacrifice, but it's a child who partly partly wants to help and is an and is an agent and a human but also at the same time is not and the plot device serves actually to undermine the traditional story so it's not an Iphigenia situation where eventually after Iphigenia is sacrificed uh the Trojans are defeated um it is that after this child is sacrificed her father who sacrifices her loses all support and his bid to become king uh essentially dies with him soon after and it is a really horrific uh storyline and you you see it right you see it from the start they set it up over a number of series and you know it's coming but often with game of thrones the way people talk about game of thrones is that it it is very emotionally impactful and the the ways in which characters are dealt with is effective emotionally in a way that other shows are not because there's not as much wish fulfillment in game of thrones there's people just die the way that you would die in real life the way that in history characters have been defeated in war or you know die in childbirth or whatever you know life isn't fair and this particular piece of plot is so effective at that mm -hmm that it feels very much like a flipping on its head of the Oracle device that the Oracle actually, or the sacrifice of the child in fact has the opposite effect. Yeah. And I guess to bring it back to the, the, the three teenage activists we've been discussing to, to try to crystallize what exactly has made us uncomfortable about this is it has, the, the way in which their image, their voice, their suffering, their pain is shared and shared and shared again and turned into a commodity has the feel for us of the slaughter of the innocent, right? The, the, a, a trope which, is, as you said, appears through history in, in various different contexts, in various different religious myths, in various different forms of literature, uh, again and again, the idea that someone who is a perfect sacrifice because they are young and innocent and whose death can then be mourned in a way that brings everyone else together, right? A community comes together over the mourning of, of an innocent life. Um, we use Parkland as an example. If anything, Sandy Hook is an even better example of that. You know, the somehow the younger you get, the 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 more innocent and the more 
unambiguous grief becomes, right? Um, but even when someone like Malala, who survived the the initial act of violence, which which was sort of her sacrifice, you can't see me. I'm using scare quotes here. Uh, but that violence and the effect it has had on her, and the way it has led to high-profile activism, which allows her to transcend that violence in a way that, I repeat, is is deeply impressive and inspirational. But there remains something troubling about the way that that violence gets used and the way she becomes a spectacle the way Emma Gonzalez, the way Greta Thunberg become a spectacle in order to make us feel good about ourselves. Yeah, well, that was cheery. <laughs> when have we not been? <laughs> um, I guess that's a good place as any to stop. I um, hope this has been of interest. Um, please don't go away thinking that we are uh, being negative about the people we've spoken about today. That wasn't what we were trying to do at all. Um, I guess it's, if anything, it's a cautionary tale for all of us to think a bit more critically about the way in which we consume and share videos and images of these three incredibly um, brave and and talented and impressive women. Yeah. And I think also thinking critically about our expectations of them, what, how we feel they might owe us something and to actually reflect on where that feeling comes from and intervene. And, and also what we owe them. Yeah. Um, which is arguably not what enough of the discussion has been about. Yeah. Right? As, as an adult world what responsibilities do we have to create spaces within which they can be political, they can be activist and still be teenagers without essentializing what it might mean to be a teenager. Yeah. Um, and that's not an easy task. It's not an easy challenge, but um, it's the least we owe them, I feel. And it's worth talking about. Yeah. Um. I hope that's been of interest. Uh, let us know if it has. Let us know if it hasn't. Um, we will be releasing a number of episodes over the next few weeks, one of which will be uh, what we're calling an Ask Us Anything episode. Uh, so if you're listening to this and you have questions about us, about who we are, what we do, why we do what we do, anything else for that matter, let us know on, on Facebook or Twitter. Uh, you will hear the uh, ways to connect with us uh, later on. Until then, have good weeks, everybody, and we will see you on Saturday. Bye. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode. I have been Hannah Fitzpatrick. And I have been an India Rich Audrey. You can contact me on Twitter at Dr. H. Fitz. And me at Dr. Anindia R. Our show is on Facebook at State of the Theory Podcast and on Twitter at Theory Doctors. Our music is provided by the Agrarians, and this has been State of the Theory. Thank you. Where would we be?